There are many different types of uh, ways to learn Torah, uh, especially when you're talking about the Chumash, the Bible, uh, the five books of Moses. There are many ways you could read it. There's, there's a lot of messages embedded in every single verse, every single story, every narrative. There, there are so many things to learn from it. Um, obviously, when learning the Torah, the first thing that we want to do is we want to understand what is it, what is it actually saying? You know, what are the words trying to communicate? Um, it's important to me. I always get this question very often. You know, is the Torah meant to be understood literally, metaphorically? You know, what's going on over here? And the, the answer is, well, look, the Torah is a literal Torah. And we need to understand the words as they are written. The stories that are there are stories that occurred to physical people that lived on this physical earth. The same earth that we walk today is the same earth that Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Meshach, all of them, they walked the same earth and they lived a physical life just like we live a physical life. Um, and we need to understand it on a very practical level. And uh, when it comes to studying Torah, the five books of Moses, uh, Rashi, Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki is the most important commentator in understanding what's called in Hebrew pshat, to understand the basic uh, under the, the, the basic translation, the basic interpretation of what's going on in the Torah is understood through Rashi. Now, uh, let, let's talk about something in our parsha. Uh, the reason I'm saying this is because. Today's uh, sicha, today's talk that we're going to be learning, is going to be a bit different than the usual learning of Rashi, or the learning of a story in the Torah. Usually it's, you know, we're trying to understand the detail. There, there, perhaps there might be a contradiction that's here, and we have to understand certain things, and Rashi illuminates the idea, and the Rebbe illuminates it even further. Um, but today, we're actually going to be seeing how the Rebbe, you know, is learning Rashi as a conversation between Rashi and a five-year-old boy learning Torah for the first time. In fact, this is the way the Rebbe read Rashi and taught Rashi for over 25, 30 years. Um, he, he, he taught Rashi, he taught a very innovative uh, perspective on how to understand Rashi. And the basic idea is that it is uh, a class, you're sitting in class, it's a five-year-old boy uh, or a girl learning with Rashi, and he is teaching this five-year-old, which means that what, what Rashi says, hello, good evening. Uh, what Rashi says needs to be understood even to a five-year-old. And Rashi needs to address every question that a five-year-old would ask. If Rashi doesn't address it, it's one of two things. Either Rashi determined that a five-year-old would not have that question, or there's no answer to the question. So that's something to keep in mind. If Rashi does not address something, it's one of two things, either it's not a question or there is no answer, uh, at least uh, on, a, on a basic level, uh, on, on a level that can be understood in the basic logic of any normal human being, there is no answer. So let's talk a little bit about our parasha. This week's parasha is called Balak. Balak was a non-Jew, an anti-Semite. In fact, he was, he was such a rabid anti-Semite that he wanted to get rid of the Jewish people, even though the Jews were not a threat to him. Balak was the king of a nation which the Jewish people were warned not to touch, a nation of Moab. They lived in, the, in proximity. They lived close by to the land of Canaan, which was going to be conquered by the Jewish people, but Moab was not to be touched. And the, the parasha opens up 
Well, here, let's give a little background. In last week's parasha, we learned how the Jewish people started to conquer the nations surrounding the land of Canaan because those nations would not allow the Jews to pass through their land. And so they conquered the nation. Uh, you know, there was a king, uh, Sichon. <coughs> there was another king, Og. The Jewish people conquered them, inhabited their territories, and were getting closer to the land of Israel. So this week, the parasha opens up that the king of Moab, his name was Balak, he saw what the Jewish people did, and he started to uh, basically come up with all of these conspiracies that the Jews are going to get him next. They're going to wipe him out. So he needs to uh, somehow protect himself, or he has to, um, I say, he has to attack first. He has to take initiative. But he realized that um, fighting the Jews with the sword wouldn't work because the two kings that were vanquished in last week's parsha, Sichan and Oeg, were the greatest warriors of the area, of, of the era and the area. So you know, he's figuring, you know, with the power of the sword, I'm not going to conquer them. Let's figure out how we can conquer them. And uh, they found out that basically the Jews, they uh, they have a prophet, his name is Moses. And Moses has a very powerful, um, he has a power of speech. In other words, he speaks to God and blesses them and he gives them instruction. So he decided to look for someone that would be on his side that would also have that same power. And he found a prophet, a non-Jewish prophet called Bilam. Bilam's prophecy was A1. He was even, he was on par with Moses with regard to power of prophecy. Ethics, morals, nah. This guy was actually in the dumps. He was pretty bad. Uh, he was actually a very rotten person. He was, uh, he, was he, uh, he had a very big ego. Um, he was very uh, money, money hungry. He was, a, he was a very bad person in general, a very nasty person, but he was a prophet. Uh, and it was known that if Bilam cursed any person or any nation, they would die, they would be destroyed, etc. So Balak wants to um, hire Bilam to destroy the Jewish people with the power of his mouth, the power of his word, his prayers, whatever, his curses. We're not going to go through the details of the story. I'd just like to point something out here. The entire story of our parasha up until the very, very end is a narrative that the Jewish people were unaware of. It was impossible for the Jews to know, number one, that Bullock had a beef with them and that Bullock wanted to destroy them. He was not in their crosshairs. He was not a target. So they had no idea that the greatest threat to their existence was coming from the direction of Moab, let alone that the way he was trying to destroy them was through Bilam. If you go through the narrative, everything that happens over there is, is outside. It's not within earshot or eyesight of the Jewish people. The Jews, Moses, none of them saw it. The entire parasha is clearly written. Um, you know, The entire Torah is written by God. The point is, that if you want to have any type of proof that the five books of Moses were not just a bunch of people experiencing things in the desert or writing down what they saw and they heard and experienced, this parasha doesn't fit. It really doesn't fit because there's no one that would have communicated this to the Jewish people. Um, and obviously it was communicated by God to Moses to be written in the Torah. Fascinatingly enough, the words that Bilam actually said, so Balak hired Bilam to curse the Jewish people. He comes, it's a whole long story, we're not going to get into that, but he, he comes, and instead of cursing the Jewish people, he ends up blessing them. So Balak was obviously very upset. You know, The last thing he wanted was that uh, Bilam should be blessing them. And finally, after trying three times uh, to encourage Bilam to curse the Jewish people, he blessed them instead. So at the end, he told Bilam, hey, run away from me. You're a dead man. 
You're a dead man walking, and you're not going to get your money, and you lost your prestige. So before he left, Bilam tells Balak, I know I'm, I'm a goner, but let me tell you what is the destiny of this people. These people that you're trying to destroy, let me tell you what's going to happen in the future. And he delivers a prophecy. That's, in fact, the first prophecy regarding the coming of Mashiach, regarding the future redemption. Um, Maimonides quotes this prophecy as one of the foundations in the Torah to the fact that Mashiach will come one day. Um, it's amazing that it comes from a non-Jew from Bilam, but that is the case. So let's go into, uh, into this prophecy that he says. Let's go to source number one. Bilam said, and now I am going to my people, come and I will advise you what this people will do to your people at the end of days. Now remember, this is a prophecy. This is not like a story. This is a prophecy. So he says it in uh, poetic, cryptic language. Um, and all of his words need to be unpacked, need to be explained. What is it all about? So, I see it, but not now. I behold it, but not soon. What's it? And why does he say it twice? A star has gone forth from Jacob, and a staff will arise from Israel, which will crush the princes of Moab, and uproot all the sons of Seth. A ruler shall come out from Jacob and destroy the remnant of the city. So if you want to understand what's going on here in this prophecy, we need Rashi. I see it. I see the prominence and greatness of Jacob, but it is not now, only at a later time. Let me explain. The Jewish people, when they left Egypt, so, okay, there were 12 tribes, and they were, you know, led by Moses. They were going through the desert. They were not a prominent nation in the world. I mean, there were, there were nomads. They didn't, they didn't have a home. Finally, they come to the land of Israel, and they inherit that. They, they, they come into the land. They conquer it. And you might think, okay, they conquered it, and then they lived happily ever after. That's not true. Uh, they entered the land of Israel. They conquered it. It was a slow process. It took a long time. Even after Joshua died, the, the job was not yet done. So they were all technically in the, the space called you know, the land of Canaan, which became the land of Israel. But for the next 400 years, approximately, they were like a bunch of disparate tribes, all just trying to settle down and figure things out. If you, if you uh, read uh, the book of the prophets, it's called the uh, Shoftim. means uh, judges. They read the book of judges. It, it, it's a very... It's a very uh, I don't want to call it depressing, but it's not a very uplifting type of tale. Uh, it describes a bunch of tribes trying to settle in the land. They do not have a unified government. They don't have a king. Um, they don't have, they, they, in other words, there are a bunch of tribes that the, the only thing that's really connecting them is the fact that when one of them is in trouble, some of them come to help. Uh, they had a lot of enemies surrounding them. Um, many different nations came and attacked them at different times. Uh, the, the, the judges that are described there, like Yiftach, uh, you have Samson the Great, they're all judges that came to prominence because, and, and they're, you know, Devorah, the, 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 the female prophet, the, the woman prophet, um, their, their claim to prominence was that they basically defeated the enemies of the Jews or put them at bay uh, when it was needed. So those 400 years were not very peaceful years. They weren't settled yet. And most importantly, they had not really reached the goal of the exodus. What do I mean by that? 
When the Jewish people came out of Egypt, their goal was not just to get to the land of Israel. Their goal was that in the land of Israel, they're going to reach, they're going to have a capital city called Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, they're going to build the Holy Temple. Up until the building of the Holy Temple, the, how do you say, the sanctuary, God's presence, was in, uh, in, a, in, in not in a permanent space. It was in a temporary space called the Tabernacle of Mishkan. It went from different, you know, from one place to the next after the desert. It was set up in Gilad and then in Shiloh. And then, you know, it was all over the place. Uh, and there were certain aspects of the service that were not uh, that were not doable up on, until the Jewish people had a holy temple. Proof to this is if you look at the Haggadah, if you look at the Haggadah, the famous song of Dayenu, right? Day, Dayenu. We all know that song. So Dayenu describes 15 steps of the Exodus. Like, you know, if God would have only taken us out and had not done great miracles, Dayenu, that would have been enough. And it goes on and on. Describing how God took us into the desert, and he provided everything for us, and he gave us the Shabbat, and he gave us the Torah, he brought us to Sinai. And then, you know, if, and it says, and if he would not have brought us into the land of Israel, that would have been okay. And then it ends off and it says, you know, everything would have been good and fine if he would have done this and not that. But the fact that God did all of this for us, we definitely have to thank him. And it goes and describes all of the steps, everything that God did for us. Um, and it finally ends off and says, not only did he bring us into the land of Israel, he also built the holy temple. So until the temple was built in Jerusalem, the Jewish people were very unsettled and uh, the exodus was not complete. Who completed that exodus? Who set the groundwork for the temple to be built? That was King David. King David was the first king of the entire Israel. There was King Saul for about two years, but his kingdom was never, never really settled down. It was always all over the place. There's a lot to discuss with regard to King Saul. But suffice it to say that up until King David, there was no capital city for all the Jewish people. Um, King David was the one to actually really bring all the tribes together into one alliance. He fought all of their enemies. He, uh, he brought an era of peace to the, to the Jewish people. And most importantly, he captured the city, conquered the city of Jerusalem. He made it the capital city of the Jewish people. He purchased the spot where the Holy Temple would ultimately be rebuilt. He prepared all of the plans. He prepared everything. He fundraised the money. He did everything that needed to be done. So why didn't he build it? God said, the reason you're not going to build my home is because your hands are drenched with blood of war. Because wars that he was meant to fight, wars that he was meant to, uh, he was meant to fight in defense of the Jewish people in order to strengthen their kingdom, solidify it. But uh, God said, my home is going to be a home of peace. It's going to be a home of life. And therefore, you are not going to build it. Your son, Solomon, uh, Shlomo, which comes from the word Shalom, which means peace. He's going to be a man of peace, and he's going to build my house of peace. So King Solomon technically built the Holy Temple, but it was always considered David's house. It was all King David. All right, so now back to Bilaam. Well, Bilaam says like this. I see the prominence and greatness of Jacob, but it is not now, only at a later time. A staff will arise, a king who rules dominantly, which will crush the princes of Moab. This refers to David. So what does is, what is Bilaam see in his prophetic vision of the future? He wants to describe what's going to be the greatness of the Jewish people. It's not now. Now they're not very great. Now they've got a lot of issues going on. It's going to take time for them to settle in the land. It's going to take time. For that exodus to actually come to its final, um, you know, final completion. But ultimately, there will be a King David in the future, 400 years down the line. 
a ruler shall come out of Jacob, there will be another ruler from Jacob and destroy the remnant of the city, of the most prominent city of Edo, that is Rome. Bilaam says this regarding the king Messiah. So Bilaam, as he, he's, he's, he's saying prophecy to Balak, who is the arch enemy of the Jewish people. And Bilaam says, I see that in the future there are going to be two great kings who are going to bring redemption to the Jewish people. There's King David, who's going to complete the redemption from Egypt. He's in the future. And then I also see another king, another king that's going to bring another redemption to the people. And that's the King Mashiach. Okay? The King Mashiach is going to be a descendant of King David. All right. So let's uh, let's go to the Sikha. Let's go to the, the Rebbe the, uh, so on page four. The verse states, I see it, but not now. I behold it, but not soon. A star has gone forth from Jacob, etc. Rashi comments. I see the prominence and greatness of Jacob, but it is not now, only at a later time. This is referring to David. The following verses continue. A ruler shall come out of Jacob. Rashi comments, there will be another ruler from Jacob. This refers to King Mashiach. Now remember, now we're having a conversation between the greatest teacher, the greatest Bible teacher, Rashi, and the five-year-old Bible student who's learning the Torah for the first time. Now, the five-year-old student, the reason, the re, by the way, the reason why the student is five years old, there's a, a Mishnah, the Mishnah in Perkeh, about the ethics of our fathers, which describes the, how do you say, the life cycle of the Jew, you know, different years. So it starts off and says, when you're five years old, you start to learn Bible, Torah. When you're 10, you start to learn Mishnah. 15, you start to learn Talmud. 18, there's a time for marriage. And it goes on, 20, 30, 40, 50, until 100. So five-year-old, that's the Bible student. So the five-year-old student poses a tough question. The reason Bilam prefaced his words by saying, I see it, but not now. I behold it, but not soon. Was so that the next generation shouldn't ask, why has King David not yet come forth? This is why he prefaced, I see it, but not now, to clarify that it is not now, only at a later time. <laughs> He's hedging his bets. says, I bet there's going to be a king, but, but, but not now, a little later. Anyway, he's not hedging his bets. He's, he's saying a prophecy, and he's explaining. He says, you know, I, I see that they have this, this glorious ruler that's going to come forth. You know, 50 years later, 100 years later, and people are going to be reading this from Bilaam and say, Bilaam, what's up with you? I mean, you? They say, yeah, yeah, it's going to be. Not now. It's not happening. Now it's going to be in the future, just to think about this. The United States of America is younger than the amount of time it took from the time the Jewish people entered the land to build the Holy Temple or for King David to come on the scene. So you gotta, gotta keep this perspective in mind. Um, we're talking about, you know, centuries, centuries later. So Bilaam is saying, look, I'm telling you a prophecy that in the future there's going to be a king, but it's going to be centuries down the road. If regarding the time of King David, it was important to forewarn, it is not now, only later, how much more so it is with regards to the time of the King Mashiach. Yeah? If, you think, if you tell me that centuries is a very, very long time to wait, and Bilaam has to preface and say, hey, you got to wait a little longer, so fine, but that was only, what, less than about 400 years. Talking about Mashiach from that time, 3,000 years. It's a little crazy, yeah? 
The fulfillment of the prophecy regarding King David was less than 500 years later, as is clear from the calculation Maimonides makes at the beginning of the laws of the temple. The prophecy regarding King Mashiach, however, still hasn't been fulfilled until this very day. Already during Rashi's time over a thousand years ago, I'm sorry, already during Rashi's time, over a thousand years had already passed since the destruction of the second temple. In addition to the periods of the first and second temples, 410 and 420 years respectively, and the 70 years of exile in between. All right, so you'll say this. He prophesied that, oh, there will be a King David. What's that King David going to do? He's going to build the Holy Temple. All right. So one can argue and say that as long as there's a holy temple in Jerusalem, that's like a continuation of King David's kingship, of King, is the King David's impact on the Jewish world. Uh, that is, as you say, it's still a completion. It's still, it's, it's still a continuation of the exodus from Egypt. And that's the glory that Bilaam is referring to in his prophecy. So for how long did the holy temple last? Well, once it was built, it, was, it, was, it stood for 410 years. It was then destroyed. 70 years later, it was rebuilt, and it stood for 420 years. So one can argue and say, okay, you know, for all of that time, that's still a continuation of King David, and Messiah, Mashiach didn't come after the destruction of the first temple. And after those 70 years, it wasn't a Mashiach that brought them back to the land of Israel and rebuilt the second temple. In fact, it's very clear that that, that second temple was just a continuation of the first one. Most of the Jewish people did not come back. Uh, it wasn't really called a second coming. The first time the Jewish people came to the land of Israel, they were there, all 12 tribes. The second time, when they came back after the first destruction, it was a very small bunch. Most of the Jews never came back to the land of Israel. So obviously that's not the King Mashiach that Bill was referring to. So let's, let, let's just, for the, for the purpose of this conversation, we'll just say, look, King David's impact or his kingdom, that continues for about a thousand years, right? He built the temple, four temples, four, four, 420. 70 years in between, you got a thousand years. But then the second temple was destroyed. And we were dispersed all over the world. No, where's the second one? Where is that second great ruler, Mashiach, that Bilaam is referring to? And in the days of Rashi, which is about eight or 900 years ago, it was already a thousand years after the temple was destroyed. It's a long time. The five-year-old student therefore asks of Rashi, how can it be? And after so many years, from the time the prophecy was said, until the era of Rashi, and all the more so today, the prophecy regarding King Mashiach hasn't yet been fulfilled. So you'll ask him, one second, how do we know that the five-year-old is asking the question? You know how we know? Because it's such an obvious question. It's an obvious question. In other words, Rashi comes to the child and says, Bilam said a prophecy. What's the prophecy? That there's going to be two kings. Who are they? King David. So the kid knows about King David. Whatever. He knows there was a King David. When, when the teacher, when Rashi told him about King David, he said that uh, King David was known to build the Holy Temple. The kid knows that there was a Holy Temple in Jerusalem. He knows that every year we mourn the destruction of the Temple. He knows that every year by Pesach, we celebrate the fact that the Shema, Babi, Yerushalayim, we're going to be in Jerusalem next year. We're going to have a Holy Temple. He knows about the Holy Temple. That he knows. And he hears that Bilam is saying a prophecy that there's going to be a King David and there's going to be a Mashiach. And he also notices that Bilaam was specific and he said, oh, it's going to be in a long time. It's going to be a very, very long time. What was he referring to? King David. Centuries later, it's going to be King David. So the kid asked Rashi, and what about Mashiach? But why is it taking so long? From the time that Bilaam said his prophecy until King David came on the scene was about 400 years. 
Why is it taking 3,000 years, 2,000 years, 1,000 years for Mashiach to show up? So, all right, so he has a question, right? Let's see what would be a possible answer. So, when the Rebbe would teach Rashi, he would say, look, Rashi expects that the child is actually listening to the class. Not only does he listen and absorb the information, he also remembers the information. So, if there's a question in this week's parasha that could be answered by something that Rashi explained in a previous parasha, Rashi doesn't address it because I already explained it. See, most of us, we forget from class to class. But the five-year-old Boychik or the five-year-old girl that Rashi is learning with is, is, is meant to remember, right? Okay. The five-year-old who studies scripture asks an additional question. Uh, he asks like this, the cause of the exile is, as we say, it is because of our sins that we have been exiled from our land. We say that in our prayers on the holidays. See, the five-year-old is also expected to be in shul and to read the siddur and to understand what's being said in the siddur. So he hears that there, there's an explanation for exile. What's the explanation for exile? Our sins. Not only that, not only does he read that in the siddur, he also read that in the Chumash, he read that in the Bible, in the previous parasha, in the book of Leviticus. The child has already learned in the Torah portion of the Chukotai, which is the last portion of Leviticus. It says like this, uh, you know, in that, in that parasha, we have this long list of curses that, that God tells the Jewish people, you know, if you're going to do what you have to do, you'll have a lot of blessings. But if you don't, if you sin, oy, 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 it's going to be pretty terrible. So what does it say there? It says, that if you're not going to keep my mitzvahs, you're going to be kicked out of the land. A nation will come, destroy your temple, take you out of the land. Then the land will be appeased regarding its sabbaticals. It will rest during all the days that it remains desolate, whatever it had not rested on your sabbaticals when you lived upon it. In other words, the, the Torah is clearly saying that um, you know, living in the land of Israel comes with obligations comes with, with uh, terms and conditions. One of those obligations is you live in the land of Israel. On the seventh year, you have to allow the, the, the ground to lie fallow. It's a sabbatical. Actually, this year is also Shemitah. It's a sabbatical year. You're not allowed to work the land. If you work the land, the land's upset. Why are you working? Shabbos. It's Shemitah. It's sabbatical. And because you're going to work the land, you're going to violate the sabbaticals, the land is going to kick you out. You're going to be out. And when you're out and it's desolate, now the land is going to kind of make up its sabbaticals. Rashi explains, the 70 years of the Babylonian exile correspond to the 70 sabbatical and jubilee years that transpired during the period that the Jewish people angered God while in their land, as Rashi continues to give the details of that calculation. Um, that's, you know, the, the next one is bringing that source from... So let's go to the bottom of, bottom of page seven. Uh, then the land will be appeased. This verb is in the reflexive form, meaning then the land will be appeased and in turn appease the anger of God who had been angry regarding the land's sabbatical years. Whatever it had not rested on your sabbaticals, the 70 years of the Babylonian exile correspond to the 70 sabbatical and jubilee years that transpired during the years that the children of Israel angered God while in their land total of 430 years if you take the 430 years and you calculate the sabbatical years the jubilee years the jubilee is 
after seven sabbaticals, after seven years of seven, uh, seven times seven is 49. So the 50th year is Jubilee. And that year is also observed as a sabbatical year that you're not allowed to work the land. So you had a total of 70 sabbatical years within 430 years. The Jewish people did not keep the sabbaticals then. So they were kicked out. And the punishment was, can I say, the punishment was very clearly connected to their sin. They sinned for 70 sabbatical years. They were kicked out of the land for 70 years. So in other words, we see a, a direct correlation between sin and exile. Right? So it's, it's kind of like proportion. It can make sense. They should be out for 70 years. You violated 70 sabbaticals, you're out for 70 years. So the Rebbe continues based on this. So let's go to page 8. <clears throat> based on the above, even if we are to say that the sins of the Second Temple era were more severe, and as a result, the exile is more severe, the punishment should still be within some proportion. Perhaps double as long, 140 years. Triple as long, right? 210 years. Or at most, seven times as long. Because if you look at, the, at the, that, that, whole, uh, that whole list of, of uh, punishments, there's a line there that says like this, I will add another seven punishments for your sins. So there's a way of reading it and saying like, you know, uh, God is going to multiply it by seven. All right. So take the 70 years, multiply it by seven. What do you get of it? 490. No, 490 years. Yet, in fact, this exile is disproportionately longer. A thousand years by the time of Rashi, far longer by now. What type of answer? That's not even an answer. So, in other words, in, in, this, in this conversation going on between the student and Rashi, which actually was not transcribed by Rashi yet, right? But we know that this conversation is happening because it's such an obvious question. And uh, the child is asking the question. So, why didn't Rashi answer? Well, maybe... Rashi is hoping that he'll remember what he learned. I mean, definitely he's hoping he remember what he learned at the end of Leviticus. So, um, yeah, the reason why it's longer is because they sinned, right? That's why we're in exile. But that doesn't work because what was explained there, explaining the 70 years of that first exile, the Babylonian exile, that's a proportionate exile. You violated 70 sabbaticals, you're out of the land for 70 years. It doesn't explain why we're not there for 1,000 years or 2,000 years. At most, that calculation would allow, would make sense that there's 490 years of exile. It's a lot longer than seven, a lot longer than seven. But at least there is some type of proportion to it. All right. Uh, to add, <clears throat> uh, let's continue. To add, the number of Jews that sinned during the Second Temple era, even if we assume that it was the majority of the people, is incomparable to the number of Jews that have lived in all of the subsequent generations. With every year and every generation, the number of Jews continues to increase in accordance with the command, be fruitful and multiply. As a result, an enormous amount of Torah study and mitzvah actions have been performed over the course of these generations. Certainly, this amount is sufficient to rectify and atone for all of the sins in the Second Temple era, which were committed by a far smaller number of Jews than the number that have existed in subsequent generations. How then can it be that the punishment of exile has lasted for so long? It is clear that with every generation, more atonement and rectification is added, and not the reverse, God forbid. 
For if this were not the case, what is the point of the exile continuing from generation after generation? What is God waiting for? It is therefore impossible that over the course of so many years, all the shortcomings haven't yet been rectified. So to say, in other words, to explain to the child why it's taking a thousand years, two thousand years, three thousand years for the prophecy of for Bilam's prophecy of Mashiach to not come to answer that by saying, because we've sinned, it's dead on arrival. It doesn't work. It's dead weight. Because sins, God doesn't punish, punish disproportionately. He punishes proportion. And no amount of explanation can explain why the Jewish people are in exile a thousand years later, two thousand years later. In other words, the argument of, hey, we sinned, we need to be punished, that's done. A long time. As mentioned, Rashi doesn't answer this question for the Torah studying child. Okay, now let's bring up another situation, another way of explaining this to the child. So the answer, sins, that's, that doesn't work. Maybe something else would work. Let's go to C, all right, we're up to page 10. We have discussed several times that Rashi usually assumes that the Torah studying child remembers what he has learned previously in the Torah. There is no need to repeat that which is that which has been explained earlier, aside from some exceptions where it is necessary to emphasize a point further or it is in a different book in the Torah. In our case, the five-year-old student learned at the beginning of the Torah portion, a people have come out of Egypt, and later in the portion, God brought them out of Egypt. This reminds the student about what he learned about the original Egyptian exile in general, which he also recited at the Pesach Seder. When is the first time that the Egyptian exile is mentioned in the Torah? Long before the exile started. It was told to Avram, it was told to Abraham. Abraham was told, uh, it's, it's called Bris Ben Absarim, the covenant of the parts. God made a covenant with Abraham. He said, you're going to be my nation. Your nation will inherit the land. And then he told him something. He said, you shall surely know that your seed will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. And they will enslave them and oppress them for 400 years. And afterwards, they will go forth with great possessions. This is a conversation between God and Abraham. What does he tell him? He says, before I give the land to your children, they're going to go into exile. Not because they sin. There's no mention of sin. Not at all. The Egyptian exile had nothing to do with sin. Who had sinned? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. <laughs> These people were perfect. They never sinned. And God says, it's not because of sin. The reason I'm sending you there is because after the 400 years, which turned out to be 210 years, you are going to leave with all of their possessions, with all of their gold and silver and everything. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean they left with all of their gold and silver? We see from here, let, let's, uh, we're going to skip the next uh, thing. We're going to go to the bottom of page 11. We see from here that exile isn't necessarily a punishment. These were the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the tribes, and God forbid to say that they deserve the punishment of exile. Rather, the purpose was, afterwards they will go forth with great possessions. Indeed, this is what actually happened. And they borrowed from the Egyptians silver objects, golden objects, and they emptied out Egypt. They took all the gold and silver out of Egypt, great possessions in the literal sense, and certainly also the spiritual great possessions, the rectification of the divine sparks. Here we're talking about a concept which is very uh, it, it, which is explained in great depth, Kabbalah and Exodus, that everything in this world 
has a spark of godliness, has a spark of, of, of goodness. And it's our job to get in touch with that. And so what was really happening with the exile in Egypt, there was a lot of divine sparks that were stuck in the, in the moral depravity of Egypt. And the Jewish people had to go there and they had, they had to slave there so that in the end they'll be able to take out all of the gold and silver. And with that, they're going to be doing a tremendous spiritual um, process, which is actually called tikkun, rectification. They're going to be getting in touch with all of these sparks and elevating them, taking those taking that gold and silver, and ultimately what are they going to do with the gold and silver? They're going to build the tabernacle for God, they're going to build the holy temple for God. So that's what they were doing in exile in Egypt. They weren't, they were not, um, they, they weren't serving a sentence for their sins. They were going there with a mission, and their mission was to elevate those sparks. Um, okay, so let's continue. It is therefore clear that in our current exile, we also have the purpose of afterwards they will go forth with great possessions. But in our case, it, this is an infinitely greater amount of possessions than what existed at the time of the exodus of Egypt. Because we need to take with us not only the possessions of Egypt, but of the entire world. This is why our current exile has lasted so much longer than the Egyptian exile. And the purpose of the enduring exile is so that we should be able to amass greater possessions. We should be able to get in touch with more sparks, elevate them. It's a bigger job. So a bigger job demands more time. 400 years or 210 years was sufficient to get all of the sparks out of Egypt. But to get all of the sparks throughout the world, apparently it takes a lot more, a lot more time. No, but the question remains, until when? How much longer will we have to endure this exile? If the purpose we are in exile is for the great possessions, then already in Egypt, the Jewish people said they want to leave alone and were willing to forgo the great possessions. They had no interest in taking the possessions. They wanted to get out of exile. This argument is even stronger nowadays. When we have already accumulated great possessions in the spiritual sense, Torah and good deeds, through all the work we have carried out, spreading Torah and Judaism, including the wellsprings of Hasidus. So they have this argument like this. You want to tell me that the reason why it's taking so much longer, the reason why Mashiach has not come yet, is because we have a bigger job. Come on, that big? Are you kidding me? 2,000 years. That, that's a little bit, uh, as I think we're on overtime. How did a famous, uh, a famous businessman say? He's going to do everything under budget before schedule, right? Before the, before, the, before the deadline. I mean, 2,000 years to gather the sparks throughout the world. If to gather the sparks in Egypt took only about 210 years, 2,000 years is very disproportionate. Uh, and it's not just our own logic that's dictating that. I mean, great tzaddikim, great, uh, great leaders, great saintly people who were able to see what's actually going on, they said, actually, all the work is pretty much done. The previous rabbi already said that all the necessary work has been completed, and all that remains is to polish the buttons, and then we will stand ready to welcome the Mashiach. While this isn't mentioned in Rashi, it was revealed to us by a great scholar, the Torah, the true Torah scholar of our generation, my father-in-law, the Rebbe, the leader of our generation. This leads the child to ask, why hasn't Mashiach come yet? He has already polished his bones, but Mashiach still hasn't come. Guess what? For this question, 
Even Rashi has no answer. But it isn't relevant to the interpretation of the verses in our Torah portion. It is a general question. All right, here, here is where something really powerful is happening. Rashi is not ignoring the question. Rashi is actually answering the question. What's he saying? He's not answering the question why Mashiach hasn't come. But he's giving perspective to the child and to every single Jew that learns Torah how to approach this question. This question, why Mashiach has not come yet, it's not a philosophical question. It's an emotional question. It's a very painful question because as long as Mashiach is not here, that, that's, that's where all of the trouble comes. All of the tsaris, all of the problems that we have, all the problems that the world has, are a result of the fact that we're in exile, are a result of the fact that Mashiach is not here yet. So the question is, so why is he not here? The question is, why, did, why is exile so long? Why are all the tzaddas happening? Why are all of these troubles happening? You know what Rashi says? No answer. You want to suggest sins? Nah. Not proportionate. You want to suggest we've got more work to do? Nope. That doesn't work either. So why are we here? Rashi didn't know. You expect to know. Why is this so important? I'll tell you why. Because there is a certain genre of Jewish charlatans that you should be very, very careful with. And that's the genre of people that claim to be prophets or they claim to know it all and they make declarations. The reason why Mashiach hasn't come yet is because X, Y, and Z. In fact, Jewish people are so terrible that another Holocaust is going to happen. You'll gasp. You'll, you'll be like, what? Another Holocaust? Yeah, people actually said this. They still say it till today. Got to be careful for these people. They're hacks. And, and the Rebbe actually uh, was very, very careful to always um, point that out. To say that the Jewish people today deserve one thing. That's Mashiach. On all accounts, that's the only thing that we deserve. As long as we don't get it, you know us to answer for that? God has to answer for that. God doesn't need an advocate. God doesn't need a lawyer. He doesn't want you to be his lawyer. God doesn't want exile. Why it's still here? That's, that's a great question. And leave it at that. But to answer and to say the reason why Mashiach is not here, the reason why we're still in exile is because we're a bunch of sinners, that's, that's not an answer. In fact, uh, it's not just today. It's not just happening in our, in our generation. But uh, in fact, in the times of Maimonides, there was a similar situation. And Maimonides wrote uh, a long letter. It's called The Letter Regarding Apostasy. And uh, this, it was written to a community that was suffering from such a self-proclaimed prophet or whatever, dooms, a doomsday prophet. And uh, Maimonides describes various situations where people, great people who had spoken negatively about the Jewish people were punished as a result. And Maimonides concludes, source number four, if such was the retribution exacted from, pillars of, from the pillars of the world, when they merely spoke few words against the Jewish people, how much more so a simpleton of the lowest regard would dare lash out at Jewish communities to call them sinners and evildoers? Don't pay them heed. Someone that goes and, and denounces the Jews that they're bad, tune them out. Tune her out. They have no place. They have no right. They don't know what they're talking about. 
Uh, in fact, in 1990, yeah, it was the winter of 1990, there was a fellow who had uh, a loud megaphone in Israel. Uh, he also had a very prestigious position. And he made uh, a very strong statement. He said that every amount of, uh, you know, that God has a cup. And the cup fills up with the sins of the Jewish people. When the cup overflows, that's when a Holocaust happens. He said these words, the Holocaust happens. So the Holocaust that happened in 1939 to 1945, that was a result of many, 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 many sins. And uh, things haven't gotten better. The Jews are still sinners. And everyone watch out. Another Holocaust is coming. Now, obviously, that statement, and it was, it, was, it was made in a very nasty context. It was made in a political context, which is always never, in general, you should always tune, your, tune, tune out from politics, especially Israeli politics. Um, and that, that's what this fellow did. He, uh, he, he made this very, very strong statement. The problem was that it was coming from someone who, uh, who carried a position that could have, been, could have been viewed as, you know, authoritative in Torah, authoritative in Judaism. And the Rebbe viewed this very, very seriously. It was the 10th of Tevis, which is a fast day. And always the Rebbe would speak on a fast day. And, and this, the 10th of Tevis, the Rebbe dedicated the entire talk responding. It was, it was a complete rebuttal, but it was, it was, a, it was the Rebbe responded to this accusation uh, of, of, of this person, and also the, 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 how dare a person speak against Jews in such a way and to threaten them with the Holocaust, who are you? Um, but the question is, so how do you explain the Holocaust, right? So here's what the Rebbe said. There are negative occurrences that don't happen as a punishment for sins, but simply because God decreed so, without any logic or reason, even not Torah logic. The sages expressed this in the context of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was the greatest Talmudic sage, not just of his time, for many generations. If not for Rabbi Akiva, we wouldn't have the Torah today. So it's a bold statement, but it's true. What was his end? He did not die a peaceful death. He was flayed. He had his skin flayed by iron. He was killed by the, by the Romans in the most brutal manner. Him... Nine other sages, in total it was ten great sages of that generation, were murdered by the, were executed by the Romans. And in heaven, there was this huge outcry. I said, what? This is what's going on? And what did God say? Silence. This is what has been decided in my mind. And it is a decree from me. Regarding this, the question of would God exact judgment without justice is not raised. When God says, that's what I decided. You don't come and argue, hey, it's not right. Because our logic goes only up to a certain level. God transcends our logic. God transcends the logic of the angels. He transcends it all. And sometimes God has a decision. He made a decision that this is what's going to happen. Something that makes no sense, not even in Torah. Even the greatest Torah scholars can't fathom how such a thing could occur. The primary example of this type of negative occurrence is the decree issued at the covenant of split parts. Right? When God is making a covenant with Abraham, what does he tell him? You shall surely know that your seed will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and they will enslave them and oppress them for 400 years. This wasn't because of sin, but simply because God decreed it. Sometimes things happen, horrible things happen, without reason. 
well, I should clarify. It's not without reason, but without any reason that is fathomable by us or even by Torah. Sometimes certain things just come from God, which could get very confusing. Like, how does this work? How are we supposed to respond to these situations? In fact, it is a Jewish, it is a, a basic Jewish tenet that when something bad happens, you have to kind of search your own deeds and see why am I deserving of this punishment? Let's see, there's a, there's a story in the, in the Talmud, source number five. The Gemara, the Talmud relates another story regarding acknowledgement of the justice of divine punishment. 400 barrels of Rav Huna's wine fermented and turned into vinegar, causing him great financial loss. Rav Huna was a great Talmudic sage. Now he lost, he lost so much money, 400 barrels of wine. Rav Yehuda, the brother of Rav Salah, the pious, along with the sages, as some say, Rav Adabar Av, along with the sages, entered to visit him and said, they told Rav Huna, the master should examine his actions, as perhaps he committed a transgression for which he has been punished. Rav Huna said to them, am I suspect in your eyes? Have I committed a transgression on account of which you advise me to examine my behavior? They said to him, is the Holy One, blessed be he, suspect that he exacts punishment without justice? Your loss was certainly just, and you must examine your conduct to find out why. The sages were aware of a flaw in Rav Huna's conduct to which they alluded. Okay, we're not going to get into the details of the story, but the point is, it's very clear from the Talmud that if something bad happens, there's a reason for it. you got to fix it up. That's one story. What's the next story? Here's another. Okay, so the next story. Rav Huna says, that Rav says, when Moses ascended on high, he found the Holy One, blessed be he, sitting and tying crowns on the letters of the Torah. If you ever look at a Torah scroll, you'll see that the font is very unique because it doesn't just have letters, but some of the letters have these like little lines coming out on top of it. They're called crowns. In Hebrew, they call them tagim. Tagim are the crowns on top of the Torah. It's very important for the Torah for specific letters to have these crowns. Who decided where the crowns go? God. <laughs> Moses saw God taking his Torah and putting crowns on top of these letters. So... Um, Moses said before God, Master of the universe, who is preventing you from giving the Torah without those additions? Why do you have to put the crowns on? God said to him, there is a man who is destined to be born after several generations, and Akiva ben Yosef is his name. He is destined to derive from each and every thorn of these crowns, mounds upon mounds of halachot, the Jewish laws. It is for his sake that the crowns must be added to the letters of the Torah. Moses was impressed. Moses returned and came before the Holy One, blessed be he, and said before him, Master of the universe, you have a man as great as this, and yet you choose to give the Torah through me. Why? Why didn't you just bring Rabbi Akiva? Let Rabbi Akiva bring, give the Torah. What do you need Moses for? <coughs> Noah got answered. God said to him, be silent. This intention arose before me. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense for Moses to be the one to give the Torah. There was a much better candidate, Akiva, Rabbi Akiva. And Moses was right. He said, logically speaking, I shouldn't be the one giving the Torah. Akiva ben Yosef, he should be the one giving the Torah. You know what God tells him? I don't have an explanation for you. That's what I decided. Torah can't explain it to you. It's, a, it's beyond Torah. It doesn't stop there. Um... Moses said before God, Master of the universe, you have shown me Rabbi Akiva's Torah. Now show me his reward. 
God said to him, return to where you were. Moses went back and saw that they were weighing Rabbi Akiva's flesh in a butcher shop as Rabbi Akiva was tortured to death by the Romans. And as he saw his end, saw his death, his torture. Oh, Moses said before him, master of the universe, this is Torah and this is its reward. <laughs> you showed me how great Rabbi Akiva is in Torah. And you're showing me that this is going to be his death. This is going to be his end. This doesn't make any sense. What does God say? God said to him, be silent. This intention arose before me. So how does this work exactly? When do we say that a punishment is a result of a sin? Like we have clearly in the, you know, the Talmud, Rav Huna, something terrible happened and they said, go check out your, your deeds, you know, figure it out. You have, to, you, have to, you have to fix things up. So the truth is, that, and, and then on the other hand, we have this story with Moses and Rabbi Akiva and basically God telling him, oh, you're not going to get it. You're not going to understand it. That's what I decided. <coughs> so here's, here's the basic idea. True, true. Um, typically, the way things work is that when we experience bad things, as a result of something bad that we did. So a person in their personal life, when they experience negative energy, a negative anything, you always have to uh, be on top of yourself and say, hey, where, where am I slacking? Where am I lacking? What can I add? How can I fix things up? But when we talk about it, so that's with regard to you know, me, myself, thinking about my own life, exile. Is not about one person. It's not even just about a nation. Exile is, is, is a problem for the entire world. The fact that the Jewish people are not in the land of Israel properly, they don't have the King Mashiach, they don't have a holy temple, this has an impact on the entire world. All of the trouble in the world is coming as a result of that. That you can't explain, right? That's not something you can say, oh, because of sins. That's not proportionate. That's not proportionate at all. You know what's you know the only explanation for it all? That's what God decided. But you know what? We don't have to take it. We don't have to take it sitting down. You think Moses didn't know that's what God decided? He knew that's what God decided. And what did he say? He protested. He said, "Come on, God, really?" And God wants that. God wants us to protest because God doesn't want us to be, you know, I say, uh, okay with the fact that we're in exile, not even for another moment. We have to be clamoring for, for, for Mashiach immediately. We have, to, we have to, you know, demand it. And in fact, it's embedded in the sitter. It's embedded in the prayer book. If you look at the prayer book and the, and, and, you know, the Amida prayer, we're asking for it all the time. And the only way we are going to actually demand that Mashiach should come, the only way we're going to feel that, hey, this exile is not fair, is if we're going to fully understand and appreciate that there is no explanation to exile. Never explain it away. Never allow anyone to explain it to you. Because they can't. Why? Even God won't explain it to us now. In fact, um, the only time we will hear an explanation is when Mashiach will come. It's actually one of the interesting things the prophet says that when Mashiach will come, we're going to understand it so well that we're going to thank God for it. But only then. <laughs> only then, not now. Now, we can't have it. Now we have to demand that it should end immediately. And in fact, we hear this also from, from the, the, the conversation that's happening between the child and, and, and Rashi. The child says, one second, Bilam said that, that in the future there will be a David. In the future there will be a Mashiach. All right, they waited a few centuries for David. 
Does it make sense that we're waiting over a thousand years, two thousand years for Mashiach to come? And what's Rashi's response? There's no answer. There is no answer to that question. The only one that can answer that question is God. And the only time he can answer that question is after he brings Mashiach. It won't happen before. Because we don't want God to answer. We want Mashiach. And we'll end off with the four important words. We want Mashiach now. All right. Thank you all for joining. And we look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you, Rabbi. That was fascinating. Yeah, when I was preparing for it, I thought the same thing. Thank you. All righty. I have one quick question. Sure. I noticed in one of the earlier pages, it used the word borrow, that when the Jews went out of Egypt, that they borrowed the silver and gold. We didn't borrow it. We kept it. Right. That's actually, that's a great question. You're, you're very observant. The word borrow is actually the word that the Torah used, that, that uh, a woman was going to borrow from her neighbor. But that's beyond the... <laughs> we, we don't have time for that today. Okay. Yeah, it's a good question. It's a, it's, a, it's a legitimate question. It's a question that's dealt with at length and in great depth, but not for tonight. Maybe, maybe a different time as we get closer to Pesach. Okay. All righty. Have a good week, everybody. Bye. All the best. Bye-bye. Take care. Have a good Bye. Night. Thank you. Bye.